Welcome to the last instalment of Worldviews, of the Word, the World and Worldviews. Um, so in week one, we covered a whole lot of um, different worldviews. We started with Christian theism, because that is where traditionally the worldview of the Western world was from sort of 300 AD through to the 17th century, 18th century. Um, so we started with Christian theism, and then we watched as each worldview progressively moved away from God. They just kept taking another step, another step away from God. So that was in week one. Um, then last week, we asked the question, okay, so what's changed in the last 10 years? Things have really shifted in the last 10 years. And um, the unthinkable 10 years ago is now the norm, and the norm of 10 years ago is now unthinkable. So what's happened? What's the shift? Why has that happened? And we looked last week, um, the first thing we looked at last week was something called postmodernism. So this should sound familiar to those of you who were here last week. We talked about meta-narratives, how meta-narratives are like the overarching story of life. Okay, so for a Christian, um, the meta-narrative of Christianity is the creation story followed by the fall and the power of sin and then the promise of a saviour and Jesus coming and redemption. So that's our meta-narrative. That's the overarching story that everything else comes under and everything else hinges on. Does that make sense? And so there's lots of other stories in the Bible. You know, you've got Daniel in the lion's den and Moses and all these things, but all of them, all the individual stories are actually in service to the overarching truth that we live by, okay, that God created us, that we rebelled against him and that Jesus came as our saviour and that we're going to be in eternity with him. So that's the meta-narrative. Um, the central um, premise of postmodernism is that meta-narratives don't exist. So postmodernism, this worldview that we've all grown up in, it's the predominant worldview that we all live in, actually says that there is no such thing as a meta-narrative that is true. Okay, So straight away, our meta-narrative, our overarching story that we believe is, is the truth, Postmodernism says, no, that's fine for you to believe it, but it's not actually true. It's your truth. It's not the truth. Okay. And postmodernism also believes that any attempt by someone to say that there is universal truth is just a power play. So you're trying to push your truth on me and you're oppressing me, which is why there's so much kickback against Christianity with postmodernism. Does that make sense? This should all be revision for you. All right. This is why the church and Christianity is often seen as oppressive because we believe in a meta-narrative and we want everyone else to believe in our meta-narrative, okay? Um, in a postmodern society, language is power and whoever controls the language or whoever controls the narrative controls the culture and con controls the people. And that is used, number one, to silence people and number two, to control people. And we talked again about this last week. So we talked about who decides what words are free speech versus who decides what words are hate speech, right? There's that whole push against free speech versus hate speech today. Um, then we talked about the rise of postmodern tribalism, which then moves us from individuals with our own narratives and our own things that we believe into these groups of people or these tribes where instead of us all having an individual thought, we now have to submit to the thought of our group, whatever that group is. Okay, And your well-being or your happiness is determined by how well you fit into your tribe. And your tribe could be based on your gender identity, on your feminism, on your socioeconomic status, on your ethnicity, on your sexuality, on your religion or your politics, whatever it is, you are in a tribe and everyone thinks the same in that tribe. Um, this closes down debate because if you're in the tribe, you can't speak up against the tribe. And if you're outside the tribe, if you're in a different tribe, you can't speak against it. Um, and this is where you get the, you know, you can't tell me what to do sort of mentality, all right? Um, the... 
you know, you're a straight white male, what right do you have to speak into my life? That kind of thing, okay? Um, and this then brings us into the whole idea of intersectionality, where people are then distinguished not by their identity, not by their individual personality, not by what they believe, but by the group that they belong to, okay? And intersectionality, <laughs> intersectionality is the whole idea that um, there's different groups and some of them are higher, higher on the victim status than other groups. And so depending on where you are on this intersectional chart, um, you know, you may be, you know, at the bottom is going to be your straight white male and then you've got the different groups and depending on where your group ranks in victimhood gives you different levels of power. Um, or at least a, a voice, at least. Okay, so there's another thing that we just touched on briefly last week that I'm actually going to delve into more this week, and it's a whole concept called modernity, or, yeah, modernity, all right? And this is another thing that's caused a shift in the last 10 years. This is one of the things that's gone, that's made our world go, what? Five years ago, that was not this, right? This is, modernity has caused this. And so I'm going to expand a bit on what we did last week, on this because I only just touched on it and then we ran out of time. So hopefully we won't run out of time tonight because it's the last night and then we're in trouble, right? Um, so what is modernity in a word? In a word. I'm not going to give you a word. I'm going to give you a sentence. <laughs> what is modernity in a sentence? It's basically everything that makes up our modern world. Everything, right? So it includes the ideas we've been talking about with worldviews, but it's more than just ideas. It's more than just worldviews. It's everything, all right? So if I've got a particular worldview, like if I'm a moral relativist and I don't believe in absolute truth, and I encounter Jesus and I have a revelation that, yes, there is right and wrong, yes, there is good and evil, and there is truth, because his name is Jesus, I could change my worldview from someone who doesn't believe in absolute truth to someone who does. So I can change my worldview. Modernity is different. Modernity you can't actually escape, okay? Because it's the world we live in. It's not just about ideas, even though it does include ideas. It's ideas, but it's also institutions. So it's our system of government. It's business. It's education. It's where we live. If you're living in cities versus urban areas or suburbs or out in the country, it's how we live. We've got airplanes. We've got fast cars. We've got iPhones, TVs, computers, microwaves, online shopping, right? Um, and it's the speed that we live with. And the speed that we live with, what I mean by that is the emails, instant messaging, our careers that change so quickly, the internet, everything is fast, right? Yeah. And, and those of us who are not millennials will, not, will feel that, right? The world is faster than it was when I was a kid. I'm sure the world is faster than it was when you guys were kids. It's just speeding up. And that is modernity. And it's impossible for us to actually escape the impact of it because we live in it, right? And I'm not saying modernity is right or wrong. I'm just saying this is what it is. And there's some, there's some consequences and some impacts of that that we'll go into. Um, modernity is actually the greatest challenge that the Western world, Western church, sorry, has faced so far, which is a weird thing to say because I'm kind of going, oh, yeah, the, where we live is a great challenge. But the reason it's a great challenge is because it's not in your face like heresy <coughs> is. You know, it's not, it's not someone standing up and yelling in your face. Um, it's not persecution. It's not atheism. Now, that all still exists, and we've talked about that, um, and it's actually on the rise. But when something's in your face, you're forced to respond, right? You've got to, you've got to respond in some way. When someone's, you have to respond. The, the thing with modernity is it's more subtle, and it's more deceptive, and it, it, it engages us by not engaging us. 
it kind of just slips past, we don't notice it. So it's very deceptive, it's very subtle. And that means we actually have to be awake to it to be able to fight it. We've actually got to be able to recognise it before we can fight it. So when something's in your face, when there's a heresy or a persecution in your face, you've got no choice but to, but to respond. But when something's just sly, you've got to be awake to it to even see it. And so the damage that modernity does is not by standing up and yelling at the church. It's through distorting stuff. So instead of saying no faith is allowed, it says no faith is needed. Subtle change. But no faith, is, no faith allowed is, is in your face. No faith is needed is like, meh. You know, your faith has no impact on me. It doesn't even register on the radar. And that's actually more of a challenge for us to, to face. So... I'm going to give you three ways that the church is, is sorry, three ways that modernity is um, hurting or impacting the church, okay? So I've got here, what is the damage that modernity has done to the church? Number one, and those of you who were at the conference over the weekend will recognise a couple of these things <coughs> if I mention them, I preach. But number one is infinite choosing. Um, here's something about Christianity. In Christianity, God and his word are our authority, right? We do what the Bible says. He's our authority. Got the word of God is our standard, okay? Modernity moves it from me being under the authority of the word of God to preference, if I can be bothered, if I feel like <coughs> it, if I want to, right? And so the modern world actually undermines every form of authority and replace it with the, replaces it with this concept that everything is just a choice, Everything's just a preference. Everything's just what would you like to do. The problem with that is that when we dilute the authority of God over our lives, we dismiss God himself. If God is not the authority that we submit to, he's not our God, right? And this is what modernity forces us to do. The central conviction and confession of Christianity is the statement, Jesus is Lord. And it's not just a nice sounding phrase. Jesus is Lord literally means Jesus is the Lord of my life. Jesus is the authority over my life. Jesus is the one that I serve. Jesus is the one that I obey. Um, So being a Christian means I'm a person under God's authority. When God says something, I'm going to trust it. What God commands, I'm going to do. What scripture says, I see that as as being what God says. And so the Bible is my authority. But under modernity, Um, This view of authority is seen as quaint or backwards or rigid um, or oppressive. And it actually seems ridiculous for people in the modern world that we would want to submit our life to an ancient book. Why would you do what an ancient book says? It has no relevance to today's culture. And that's the way they see the Bible. And that's the way they see us submitting our life to the Bible. And so modernity has replaced the authority of God and the authority of his word with choice, endless choice, infinite choice, never-ending choice. <laughs> you know, the obvious example is like a, a shopping mall or um, online shopping, even more so. You can buy anything from anywhere in the world and it's, you've got it within a week most of the time, even if it comes from the States. It's insane. <laughs> and we can literally buy whatever we want. But I'm not just talking about materialism or consumerism. I'm not just talking about that kind of choice. Um, we actually have an infinite array of choices, whether it's from breakfast cereals to restaurants to gender identities to sexual arrangements 
to religion to philosophy. It just goes on and on. You choose. You choose anything you want about your life. And so the focus is not on making the right choice. What is now right is the actual act of choosing. So instead of going, hey, I've got a choice in front of me. What's the right choice? Modernity says, no, 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 just choose. Whatever you choose is the right choice. The act of choosing is the right choice. The act of choosing is empowering. So just choose. Experiment. Try out whatever you like. And if you don't like that choice, try something else. How are you going to know unless you try it? And so there's always other options. There's always other relationships. There's always other opportunities. There's always other choices. So just keep trying. And if you think about that from a relational perspective, we see that with people who go from relationship to relationship to relationship and can never actually commit because they're always looking for oh, another, another option. It's always another option or a better option. And finally, what then happens is that even God is reduced to nothing more than a choice. See, the, the freedom that God's given us to choose him is an incredible freedom that he has, he has allowed us to choose him. But suddenly it's just one of many choices. We've got an infinite choice and God is just one of them. And he's no better or worse. He's just one of the choices. And so where salvation should be the most important choice in a person's life, now suddenly modernity's made an idol of choice. And you can choose God today and choose something else tomorrow and it doesn't matter. Both of them are equally valid because you choose, Right? But Jesus, in contrast, said, take up your cross and follow me, which means submit your life to my authority. The other thing that modernity does is with this whole thing of choice, and then it ties in with freedom. So we're a free country. We're a free society. Okay, We have the freedom to make decisions and, and, and do things with our life. Freedom's being boiled down to my right to choose rather than freedom actually being a responsibility to do the right thing. Freedom... A hundred years ago, uh, when people were you know, looking, going towards the World War I, people who were free felt a responsibility or a duty. And duty was actually tied up with freedom. What is my responsibility? I've been given this freedom. I've been given this, this ability to choose. I'm going to choose the right choice. So now even our freedom is reduced to just another choice. All right? It's my right to choose. It's my body, my choice. Things like that, right? It's my life, my choice. And so we've Turn freedom upside down where freedom doesn't mean what it used to mean. Okay? So in the same way that choosing God or choosing salvation <coughs> is reduced to just another choice, the other thing that is reduced to just another choice is do we, get, do we submit our life to the word of God? You choose. It's up to you. Choose, oh, I'll follow this chapter. I'll do what this bit says, but I won't do what that bit says. I don't like that. I'm just going to ignore that bit. I'll take that bit. <coughs> Suddenly we're not under the authority. We've now made ourselves the authority over the word of God. Wow. So two things, happens, two things happen here. One is that the world doesn't understand when we do submit to the word of God. Because the world is like, oh, it's just your choice. You can choose to do whatever. And so because the world sees God and his word as just another choice, when we choose to actually submit our lives to the Word of God, the world goes, what? They don't understand. Okay? They don't understand at all. Why would you do that? Um, the second thing that happens is when we don't submit to the Word of God. What then happens is we become truth seekers and truth twisters. 
So at the same time that we're looking in the Word of God to find truth, we find bits we don't like and we twist it. So we're seeking truth and twisting truth at the same time. And instead of shaping my desires to submit to the truth of the Word of God, I twist the Word of God to fit my desires. And the phrase I've got here is we become a kissing Judas, betraying Jesus with our interpretation. So faithfulness is costly in the short term, but it's never as costly as the long-term price of rejecting the authority of the Word of God. So that's number one, the way that modernity has done damage to to Christianity is in this endless choosing and what that reduces um, our faith and the Word of God to. The second way is um, what I've called here fragmented life, fragmented faith. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, Modernity moves Christianity from a place of integration to a place of fragmentation. Now, let me explain. If you look at all three of the Abrahamic faiths, so if you look at um, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, all three of these particular religions demand that your faith in God is central to your life. All right? Whether you're a Muslim, a, a Jew, or a Christian, Part of that means that in every part of my life, whether I'm at work, whether I'm at university, whether I'm in business, whether I'm with my family, I want to do it to please God. And so my my faith and my beliefs are central to every facet of my life. Other religions are not like that. For example, if you're a new ager and you're doing your meditation time, that's going to have no crossover with maybe how you are in the boardroom or how you conduct your business. Okay, that's my religious part. This is the rest of my life. But Christianity is a faith where God says, no, I want to inhabit every part of your life, your friendships, your relationships, your business dealings, your public life, everything. Classic example of that is in um, Luke 6.46 when Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? If you're going to call me Lord, then this actually has to change your life, has to actually affect your life. Um, there's, a, there's a famous saying by a guy called John Mott. He said, if Jesus is not Lord of all, He is not Lord at all. And so what that means is God's authority and God's lordship must infuse my entire life. Now, this is really hard for us to do in our modern world because our modern world is fragmented. Let me explain. Once upon a time, story time with Annie Beck, no. (laughs) Once upon a time, we lived in villages or small towns, right? Like 100 people in the town, maybe, or the village. I'm going back a a couple of hundred years. Um, Everyone in the community knew each other. Everyone did life together, right? Often there was only one faith in town, usually, you know, for the West, usually Christianity. Um, and maybe there was only one church in town even. And so what that meant was the people that you did business with were also the people your kids grew up with, which were also the people you sat next to in church, right? Everything was kind of integrated. You had one life and that incorporated your entire life. And the people that were involved with you in one area of life will quite likely cross over into a whole bunch of all your other areas of life because you just had your one life. Therefore, your faith was also integrated (laughs) throughout your whole life. So what's happened is modernity has changed that. Um, Modernity has changed this. There's been two things that have happened. One is called pluralization, which is where there's just endless choices and endless ways to do things. And the other is through differentiation, which is where you end up with multiple, multiple spheres of your life. All right. I'll explain it this way. If you're living in a city like Newcastle, you could feasibly be tri- driving 30 minutes in one direction to get to work, 30 minutes in the other direction to get to church, 20 minutes in another direction to get the kids to school or get to uni, back another 25 minutes to get to the shops or the movies, and then maybe an hour or more to get to your Saturday sport. 
right? We're, we're traveling all over the place to all the different parts of our lives, okay? We have this vast network of places that make up all the fragments of my life. This is my workplace. This is my sport place. This is my social place. This is my shopping place. This is my kid's school, right? This is the beach relaxed place. All these different places and what connects them, the only thing that connects them is me driving between them all. The people may not cross over, right? So the people in my workplace may have no connection to any other part of my life. The people I connect with at my kid's school may have no connection with any other part of my life. And so everything is fragmented and it's just connected by our drive times, right? So instead of living in our one village with all our, our one group of people where everything is integrated, we're now fragmented. We've got spots all over the place. And again, this is unavoidable. Unless you want to move to the country, to the country country and live in a... But again, Australia, it's all spread out. So even if you move to the country, you're still driving, right? You'd have to go to New Zealand or a Pacific Island or something. And, you know, we've learned how to navigate this and this is all fine. But it's not just geographical fragmentation that I'm talking about. Modernity has also caused the fragmentation or the splitting apart of our relational world as well. And part of it is because of the geographical one. We have different groups of friends around different geographical locations. And so it <coughs> split things out. But what that has also meant is that in our relationships, um, just these are just some examples. This is not by any means an exhaustive <coughs> list. But sex has now been split from love. Love has now been split from commitment. Marriage has been split from having kids. Having kids has been split from raising kids. And I say that as someone who has had my kids in daycare. <laughs> but you see the point. What used to all be done in one thing is now split because we've, we've cut it all up into these little pieces and then we pick and choose what piece we want. And so then when it comes to our faith, we just have another compartment for faith. We have another fragment of our life or another facet of our life. That's my faith part. And that means for Christians, if we want to have our faith integrated through every part of our life, it's actually very, very difficult. God's design for Christianity is that his lordship would reign over every single part of our lives and that our faith would infuse every decision and every relationship and every action and every word, right? He wants it to transform everything about our lives. But it is harder than ever in our modern world. And so the lordship of Jesus has been split into fragments and he becomes lord over some of my life instead of all of my life. And that's really convicting. Like, I find that very convicting. The third way that modernity um, damages Christianity or impacts Christianity is that, number three, the unseen becomes unreal. So this is a, uh, this is a third shift that's happened with modernity where our consciousness has gone from supernatural to secular. Um, before modernity, people were very aware of the unseen and, the, and very aware of the supernatural. Now, of course, a lot of the times this manifested itself in, in superstition, right? Mm. You know, there was a storm and it meant, you know, God was angry or whatever, right? Um, so it, it, it went a little bit extreme, but the pendulum's now swung back the other way to the point where for a lot of people, Christians and non-Christians, the unseen realm or the spiritual realm is unreal and irrelevant to their lives. And so what that means is they don't believe in the spirit world. They don't believe in <coughs> spiritual battles. They don't believe in miracles. <coughs> I can't tell you, recently, multiple times in the last couple of weeks, I've been 
uh, you know, just, you scroll through Facebook and there's a particular prominent Christian um, guy that I follow on Facebook and I can't tell you how many times in the last couple of weeks I've seen people ridiculing him in his comments for believing in the sky fairy. That's the, the phrase that keeps being used. And so this is because modernity has pushed the naturalist worldview. We talked about this in World, uh, world One, Week One, <laughs> um, where naturalism is atheistic. Naturalism believes in the Big Bang and, and evolution. And so it's pushed this thing where there is nothing except what we can see and what we can observe scientifically. Everything else is not real. And it's really, really dangerous when Christians begin to wander down this path because then you get to the point where, oh, yeah, I believe in God, but I don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Or, and I believe in angels, but I don't believe there's really a, a battle with the demonic realm. I believe that God loves me, but I don't believe he does miracles in my life. I believe, you know, and so they live, in this, they live without any kind of awareness of the spirit realm or of the battle that's raging in the spirit realm. So what they see is everything. They don't realize there's more going on. But in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 4, it says that Paul brought the gospel with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. The early church didn't just preach with the power of the Spirit. They lived with the power of the Spirit. In Luke 4, it says three different things. It says Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Spirit and he's in the power of the, of the Spirit. And if you fast forward to Acts chapter 1 and 2, it's no coincidence no coincidence that the birth of the church was uh, coincided with or was accompanied by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the power of God is real, the spirit realm is real. This is the book I'm teaching from tonight, and I've just got a couple of quotes I want to read for, from it because I really couldn't phrase it better than he could. <laughs> but rather than you just listen to me read, I'm actually going to, I've got the quotes on the, on the screen if it stays there, so you can actually read, read along as I, as I go. Here we go. This one's a little bit long. I apologize, but I think it's good. Here we go. Human beings can never overcome themselves by themselves. The only possible overcomers are fallen and fallible human beings who have been rescued or saved, who then turn their lives over to Jesus and are immersed and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the power of his spirit. And thus they can do by the spirit what they could never do by themselves. Thus the saint is not a superhuman who's overcome, but the same old sinner as the rest of us, penitent, forgiven, and filled with the Spirit of God. For the early Christians, the supernatural as directly divine power was entirely natural, and the unseen was gloriously real as a crucial dimension of Christians living as the vanguard of restored humanity. The many signs and wonders performed were not a little bonus thrown in for the ignorant masses of the pre-scientific age, but a glimpse into the divine energy of the kingdom of God that Jesus had unleashed into the broken world in power. Through the power of the spirit of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven was now present and active, working to rescue and restore humanity. As in heaven, so on earth, Jesus taught us to pray. And it was the presence and power of the spirit that made that union of heaven and earth possible. In the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of sin and the power of the evil one had met their match. Without it, the story of the church would have been as brief and insignificant as that of thousands of other tiny religious sects in the rainbow diversity of the Roman world. But with the power of the Spirit, the church could live the life of the kingdom of God. And then, like the mountainous stone in the vision of Daniel, it could fill the earth and outlast the passing parade of world empires and superpowers. But always, only, and so long as it was by the power 
of the Spirit of God. Jesus, the Son of God, is the Father's greatest gift to humanity. And the Spirit of Jesus is the greatest gift of Jesus to his followers and the essential requirement for living his way of life and fulfilling his great commission. In other words, we can't ignore the unseen. We can't ignore the spirit world because we've been given the Holy Spirit. And this thing only works if we are in partnership with the Holy Spirit. The church only grows by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, we might as well go home, right? It's all done through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we can't be... We can't neglect that. We can't be ignorant of the work of the Holy Spirit. The problem is, and that was described in the early church, the problem that happened over history is that as the church began to grow in power and influence, so we're talking 300 AD, when they stopped being persecuted and started being powerful, suddenly the church didn't need spiritual power anymore because it had natural power, it had natural influence. It no longer needed spiritual power, it had secular power. And if we fast forward to today, a lot of people no longer believe in the reality of miracles. They no longer believe in the reality of the spirit world, and they no longer believe in the reality of the supernatural. Our modern world fills every gap with a clever substitution, right? You want love, we've got sex. Substitution, okay? Same kind of thing. And so when we're looking for something... Um, we're, look, we're looking for true power, not our power, but God's power. The modern world goes, oh, we'll, we'll fill that little gap with secular power, with political influence, with wealth, with whatever it might be that fills that gap for you. And that means we then have no need for the supernatural. Um, I often have students in my class go, why is it that we don't see the miracles here? And we do see miracles. I'm not saying we don't. But we don't see the miracles to the extent that they maybe do in the third world, in third world nations. They see the miracles ridiculous. You know, why is that? And I, I actually think it's because in the back of our heads we have a plan B. Please pray for me, but if it doesn't work, I'll go to the doctor. Right? And this, I'm not saying, I'm, again, I'm a science nerd. I love it. And I actually believe that. Modern, modern medicine is actually a, a miracle from God that he even made that possible, right? So I'm not discounting that. But you pray differently when there's no plan B, <laughs> right? There's an urgency to your faith. And I think that's the same kind of thing. We have all these modern substitutions that mean we often don't need the supernatural. And so what that means is modernity makes us ignore the supernatural by... Not by opposing it, but by just ignoring it. Just ignores it, just shrugs its shoulders and ignores it. So you can keep your private faith and keep the God you believe in, but don't expect the miraculous. Don't expect the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Don't expect revival. See, modernity fills every gap with a substitution and tells you you don't need it. And therefore, if you feel like you don't need it, you have no expectation for it. And if you don't have any expectation for the miracle, you won't see the miracle. If you're not looking for a miracle, you won't get a miracle. And so soon, not only is there no expectation for a miracle, there's also no awareness of the spirit realm. Here's another quote. Oh, nope. There you go. Has no need of God. There you go. Another quick quote from the book says this. Modernity has no need of God at all. For who needs God today? As modern people, we know how to put a person on the moon. We know how to market a car and sell a perfume or a politician. We know how to grow a church. Oof. And the recipe is there for any would-be pastor or church planter to download from soup to nuts. We have no need of God in any area of life. The entire hypothesis of faith is quite unnecessary. 
Fear made the gods, says atheism, and shakes its fist. But in contrast, God is no longer necessary, says modernity, and shrugs its shoulders. See the difference between the atheist pushing back, whereas modernity just goes, meh. Atheism had no desire for God, or rather has a strong desire to have no God. Modernity doesn't even bother with the issue. And that's the danger of modernity. So, enough talking about modernity and postmodernism and all that. The question I want to answer tonight is, how do we, as the Church of Jesus Christ, respond? Okay, so over the past three weeks, last two weeks and this today, I've talked about how we are being hammered by these different worldviews, by these things coming up against us. How do we respond, not only to, we don't want to just survive, we want to thrive, we want the Church of Jesus Christ to go forward, we want it to grow, we want people to discover Jesus, we want the world to be changed, we don't want to be the ones that just like survive at the end and manage to still be standing, we actually want to go forward and see the Church of Jesus Christ expand over the, over the world. So what would Jesus have us do? As individual Christians, but also as a body of Christ. We're the body of Christ on planet Earth. What should we do? Okay, so what is our response? Number one, our first response as individual Christians, the first and most important thing is this. We need to have a relationship and encounter with God. And obviously, I mean, that's so obvious, it almost goes without saying, but the problem is it doesn't go without saying. (laughs) Um, This actually has to be real. Knowing God himself is actually at the heart of the Christian faith. Remember Matthew 7, 23, Jesus says to people who are claiming to be followers of God, I never knew you, get away from me. So the knowing God is much more than just knowing about God. To know someone in the biblical sense of knowing someone is actually deeply intimate. When the Bible's talking about knowing someone, it's actually talking about the marriage relationship, which makes sense, of course, because we're the bride of Christ. Right, and to be really, really honest, it's it's in, it's deeply troubling to me as a pastor, um, because we have people in our churches, our church and many other churches that, you know, sit in the pews year after year, but don't know Jesus. And I'm not talking about people who are searching. We want them to come, right? We want anyone who doesn't know Jesus to come. I'm talking about the people who have been there for years, and they do all the right things. And they sit in their seats year after year and they think they've got it all together because they go to church, but they have zero relationship with God. And that is, it's not just heartbreaking, it's, it's, it's troubling um, because we must know God. And that's why as much as this is so obvious to say, I have to say it. Um, there's actually a cost to discipleship. This is the other thing with this relationship thing is have we picked up our cross to follow Jesus? Have we counted the cost or are we just along for the ride? And I actually believe that as the world becomes more antagonistic towards Christianity, it's actually going to be harder for people to just sit in the pews. People are going to have to choose. There's going to be a a place where people have to count the cost and choose. Are they going to do this, like really do it, or walk away? Because to just sit in the the pews won't be an option anymore. There's going to be a sifting. Um, Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ doesn't get much more blunt than that. Then he goes on, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So we want to know Christ. That is first and foremost. And that's all I'm going to say on that, but 
It has to be first because it is the most important, all right? The second thing we need to do as Christians and as the church, the way we respond to this world that is getting more and more antagonistic or has no place for God is we must have a deep knowledge of Scripture as our authority. There's actually a growing trend of biblical illiteracy in the church today, of Christians that don't read the Bible, that don't know the Bible. Um, People have given their lives over the centuries for the Bible, for the Word of God, Um, for the crime of owning a Bible, for the crime of giving a Bible away to a new Christian. They've been killed for that. Even today, it's still actually illegal and carries the death penalty in multiple countries to possess a Bible. Um, William Tyndale was burned at the stake, so burned alive, for the crime of translating the Bible into English so people could actually read it in their language. So people have, you know, once upon a time, people valued the Bible so much it was their most precious possession and they would die for the Word of God. And yet not only do we not value the Bible, we don't even read the Bible. And the problem then is that if we do read it, we read it like a self-help book. Um, we read the verse of the day on our iPhone instead of reading it as life to our souls yeah. and the authority that we live by. <coughs> so we have to shift from just reading the Bible to tick the Christian box or reading the Bible for self-help or reading the Bible when it you know, comes up on your iPhone. We've got to move from that to the place where this word of God is the authority that I submit my life to. Biblical literacy In other words, knowing what the Bible says is essential to our faith if we're going to discern the truth in this world. Because we're immersed in the culture that we're in, every single one of us, I've taught you about postmodernism, every single one of us in this room think with a postmodern mindset, even though we don't want to, because it's the thing, it's the it's the world we're raised in. Okay. And you know, some are more along that scale than others, but we all have aspects of that because we're so immersed in it. And If we're living a life where we're immersed in that culture and we go to a workplace and we're immersed in that culture and then we're watching Netflix and we're immersed in that, where the music we're listening to, the shows we're watching, the environments we're in are immersing us in that particular culture, we've got to have something that helps us see the truth. And that thing that we have to see the truth is the Word of God. That's it. All right. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with a young adult or or a high schooler who's telling me how much they're struggling with life, like really struggling with life, genuinely struggling with life. And when I ask them about their Bible reading, it's non-existent. And they don't see the connection between the two. Our Bible is life, right? It helps us think straight, helps us see clearly, helps us make decisions, helps us avoid bad decisions. It is the thing we've got to build our life on. And bless you. (laughs) On that note... um, I do want to say, if you do need help to read the Bible or you're struggling to know where to start or how to do it, please, please ask. Me or any of the other pastors are just so happy to help. That's what we're here for. Like, that is actually the joy of our lives, right? So please don't um, feel condemnation or guilt from what I'm saying. Please be inspired that we can help, all right? There's no shame in asking for help. Now, I said this before, I said it again. If we don't submit our life to the authority of the Word of God, we're not submitting our life to the authority of God, Okay. Um, and I know I have the reputation of good life of being the one who's always preaching about the importance of the Word of God in their lives. I am aware of that fact. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you could have a worse reputation. That's true. Um, yeah, exactly. 
But I'm going to keep, in, keep on saying it and keep on saying it because it actually is vital to our faith. Yeah. Um, and we can't stand and we can't fight and we can't be victorious without the weapon God gave us. And the yeah. weapon God gave us is the Word of God in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So if we don't use it, we can't fight, right? We're fighting with no weapon. And so I'm going to keep saying it until we feel sick of hearing it and then I'll keep saying it long after that because it is vital. So that's number two. We need the Word of God as the authority in our life that we submit our life to. Yeah. Um, before I go on, there is something we always have to settle in our spirit. What will I do when I don't like what the Word of God says? Will I still submit to the bits I don't like? And we've got to make that call in our heart, right? I can't make that for you. You've got to make that decision. Number three, um, our next response is to be, and this is very super spiritual language, but to be in the world but not of the world, all right? To be in the world but not of the world. This is going to require three things. So I'm just going to have a couple of subpoints here. The first thing it's going to require is engagement with the world. The second thing it's going to require is discernment. And the third thing is the courage to say no. So let me break that down a little bit for you. Um, engagement with the world basically means we're not going to separate. Let me start that sentence again. Remember last week I talked about postmodern tribalism. Everyone's in their tribes. Engagement with the world means we're not going to get into our little tribe. Right? We're not going to just be in our little Christian tribe, our inward-looking community that has no relevance or no connection with the world around us that so desperately needs Jesus. Right? We're not going to do that. We need to engage the people in our families. We need to engage people in our, at our work or at uni or at our school. Basically, I mean, it's so simple. It looks, it looks like being a good friend. It looks like listening. It looks like, care, like genuinely caring for people. That's what engaging the world looks like. What it doesn't look like is going along with everything they do and say. Okay. So while you engage, engagement comes first, but while you engage with the world, you've got to have discernment. Discernment happens as we're engaging. And then when we've got discernment, we're then able to do the third step, which is to say no. So I'm going to just break down discernment a little bit more because the other two are fairly simple. What does discernment involve? The first tool for discernment is spiritual warfare all right without sounding too too super spiro spiritual warfare is really really important um ephesians 6 i won't read all of it i'll just read a tiny bit put on the full armor of god so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms sometimes we need discernment to open our eyes and see it for what it is. Now, I'm not talking about seeing demons in the photocopier, all right? I have people who see demons in the photo. I'm not talking about that. But what I am see, what I am talking about is sometimes there are things coming against us and we see it in the natural and we go, why is that person attacking me? Why is this happening? We're not realising that maybe there's a, a battle happening in the heavenlies, that we need to wage war on a different level, wage war in the, in the spirit before we wage war in the natural. Yeah. Um, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and 4, similar theme. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And it continues on. Also, just remember with spiritual warfare, we actually go in the authority of Christ. We're not doing this in our own strength. We're not doing this with our own authority. We don't have it, right? We don't have our authority. Jesus has triumphed over the devil he has all the authority. And then he literally says to us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. So when you go, 
You're not going in your authority. You're going in the authority of Jesus Christ, yeah. right? You're not speaking in, his, in your name. You're speaking in his name. And so therefore, what that means, when we say we pray in the name of Jesus, it doesn't just mean we're saying his name. When a king sends someone in their name, you're sending them in your authority. If someone speaks on behalf of the king, they're speaking on the king's name, they're speaking with the king's authority. So when we pray in the name of Jesus, it means we're praying with the authority that belongs to that name, King Jesus. Does that make sense? So, in fact, I I don't have time to go into it, but if you want to, and I encourage you to do this, do a bit of a a Bible study or a word study on this whole idea of praying in the name of Jesus. I'll give you a little bit of a hint of how many times it's mentioned. Just in the three chapters of John 14 to 16, it's mentioned six times in the space of three chapters, right? And that's just in those three chapters. There's multiple times throughout the Word of God where it talks about praying in the name of Jesus. The reason is because his name represents his authority. You've also got Mark 9, 29, where the disciples were unable to cast this demon out of this child who was sick. And Jesus did it like that. And the disciples were like, well, why didn't it work for us? And Jesus says, this one comes out by prayer and fasting. So we sometimes discount the power of prayer, all right? the power of fasting. So in summary, <laughs> you're in demand. Don't discount what happens when we pray. And I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. Don't discount the authority that's in the name of Jesus. And don't discount the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And again, just on that, I haven't got this in my notes, but when we are, if we are hitting stuff in the Spirit, if we are praying this kind of stuff, one of the other really powerful things to do is actually pray the Word of God. So yeah. declare the yeah. Word of God out loud, prophesy it into a situation, because the Bible says the Word of God doesn't return void. So when I'm praying the Word of God, not only is, am I praying God's words back to Him, that's spin out, right? You're praying God's word back to him. So of course he's going to act on his word, right? You're declaring it. This is why out loud is really good. You're declaring it into the spirit realm. The spirit realm cannot hear your thoughts, can't read your thoughts. So if you're trying to hit something in the spirit, you want to hit it out loud because every demon in hell can hear, yep. right? That. And you know what they're hearing? They're hearing the word of God. They're not hearing you. They're hearing the word of God and all the power that goes with that. And then, of course, we know that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Yes. So, again, when you're praying the Word of God, it's the, literally the sword of the Spirit, the weapon that the Holy Spirit uses. So you pray the Word of God, the Holy Spirit goes to work with His weapon, right? A lot of power in that. Hey, yes? Two minutes. Um, so his soul and prayer, um, the, the, uh, the spiritual world, mm. the demonic world, can't obviously hear no, God, God, is God still hears, so he, God still he, acts. He can still move. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And there's nothing, nothing wrong with spirit, uh, silent prayer, but if that's all you're doing, it's not oh, enough. It's not enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but absolutely, God hears, God can read our thoughts, God knows every desire of our heart. So, yeah, that's a good, good point. All right, the second thing, actually, was I going to do that there? No, I am going to mention it now. Okay, cool. Um, what I will actually suggest before we go on to the next thing is when it comes to prayer, and if you are struggling to understand this whole idea of the spirit world, I actually have a fictional book to rec- recommend to you. Some of you will have heard or read this book. It's called This Present Darkness. It was written in 1989. Okay, so you've got to, when you're reading it, there's no cell phones, there's no internet, okay, as you're reading this story. 
but it was it was written um, by this this guy who was basically writing it to it's it's just a story it's a fictional story, but it helps you see the what happens when we pray. So it's telling the story of this particular town and this stuff that's going on in this town, but it also tells you what it shows you what's happening in the spirit realm as well. And when the church starts praying, what actually happens now? It is a fictional book, all right? It's not the Bible, but for me, it really, really helped me have some kind of understanding of the battle that's going on in the, in the spirit, all right? It's based off um, in Daniel chapter 7 or 8, I don't remember, where Daniel is, he is praying and fasting for three weeks for something. And finally, the angel Gabriel comes to him and says, uh, uh, you know, he's been waiting for three weeks and Gabriel says, you know, the moment you started praying, I was sent to you, but... The prince of Persia, he's talking in the spirit, the demonic realms came against me. And he actually, this is what the the angel Gabriel says to Daniel. He says, I had to call for Michael, the archangel, to bring his armies and fight. And it took me three weeks to get to you. Okay. This is what happens in the spirit realm. That's how real it is. And so that's why I do recommend this this book called This Present Darkness, because that's where they've got that picture from. So every time the church prays, you begin to see how the, the angels are mobilized by the by by God, and and what happens with that. So I wanted to bring it with me to show you, but I left it at home. I apologize. Sam's currently reading it. Put it in my bag if you want to show them. Great, grab it. Feel free. That'll actually be awesome so they can see it. Ah. Okay. Second thing that discernment involves. So we're still on this whole discernment thing. Um, is the understanding of the history of ideas. Now, I'm not going to say a whole lot on this because we don't have a lot of time, but let me put it this way. On the surface, an idea may sound awesome, (laughs) but its roots may be anti-God, anti-freedom, anti-church, anti-family. Could be a whole lot of things like that, okay? And so on the surface, you go, oh, yeah, that looks so good. Sounds awesome. But we have to have an understanding of the different ideas and even the history that formed these ideas so that we can actually recognise the worldview at the root of it, which may be very, very anti-God, okay? Um, I'll give you an example. Um, At the moment, a lot of millennials and Gen Zs, for the Tories of the room, a lot of them are actually really enamoured with this whole idea of democratic socialism, okay? (laughs) And it sounds so great, but what they don't have is they don't have an awareness of actually what lies at the root of socialism, and the communist heart of socialism was directly responsible for the, for the deaths of 100 million people in the 20th century. Okay, that's what communism, that's communism's legacy, is 100 million people dying in the 20th century from Lenin and Stalin in Russia to Mao Zedong in China to Pol Pot in Cambodia. Um, even today in Venezuela, people are literally starving to death under their socialist government. Okay, so people go, yeah, that sounds amazing. Let's just give everyone money. Let's make everything free. They don't go, hang on a second. Let's look at the history of this. Look at, yeah. Let's look at the atheist, anti-God history of this perspective. Look at this. Let's look at the reliance on state for everything perspective. And they don't actually delve into the history of it. So now I'm not, you're welcome to believe whatever political thing you believe. But what I'm saying is when you see an idea, delve down into the history, find out what's at the root of it. Does that make sense? Mm. So that's what this is an important part of discernment. The third thing, the last thing that discernment includes is also understanding culture. Um, And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because this is pretty much what we've been doing for the last three weeks, okay? But it's the ability to assess the culture, to analyse it, to recognise its impact on the way that people think and the way they behave, 
all right? The world that we live in and the culture that we live in actually, you've lost it? can't have my bag at all. Oh, it's in the car. Sorry. (laughs) The world we live in and the culture we live in actually shapes the way that we think and the way that we live more than we realise, okay? And so it's actually really important that we are very, very aware of that, aware of how it affects us, not just how it affects other people as well. Jesus commanded us to interpret the signs of the times. He says in Matthew 16, 3, he says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So what I'm saying at the end of the day is we actually have to use our brain. Um, We can't, when we lived in a world, which half of us have never lived in really, but you know, you go back 50 years ago, we lived in a world that was kind of predominantly Christian or at least Christian foundations, right? And you could kind of coast through. We don't live in that world anymore. So we've really got to think. We've got to engage not only our, our spirit in, in the spiritual battle, but our mind as well, okay? And so what that means is um, using our brain humbly to learn, study and research, Combine that with the word of God that speaks prophetically and gives insight and the Holy Spirit who brings revelation. If we can bring those three things together, then we're on to a winner. So to summarize that little point, we've got to start by engaging the world, by loving people the way Jesus loved us, by genuinely caring and listening. Engage the world. Then we add discernment, being able to recognize the signs of the times, being led by the spirit and waging war in the spirit realm. And then we're able to have the courage to say no. It's very hard to say no when you're unsure of your foundation, unsure of what you believe. But when you can stand strong knowing what the Bible says and knowing you've submitted your life to it, it's a bit easier to see clearly and to stand tall and to say no. One last quote before we move on. We're nearly done, guys. Oh, my gosh. The courage to be distinctly Christ- distinctively Christian and to live differently must be restored to the heart of the Christian faith. Despite everyone and despite everything, we are called to stand, faithful only to Jesus, our Lord and our God. And I think what weighs heavy on my heart is we haven't, that hasn't been tested for a long time in the Western world. But I think it's going to be tested in the coming years. I know it's going to be tested in the coming years. And this is why I want to do this. I want us to be awake for it, to be able to see it and to recognise it when it comes. Number four. We need the generations. Um, God's multi-generational. And in fact, when Jesus talked about the generations, he actually you know, talked about the, the, this generation is asking for this and this is what the generation we're given, a sign, da, da, da. When he talked about this generation, he wasn't talking about the younger generation or the older generation or the middle-aged generation. He wasn't referring to the Jewish version of the baby boomers. It's funny we talked about this. He wasn't referring to the Jewish version of the baby boomers, the Gen X, the millennials, the Gen Z. When he talked about this generation, he was referring to everyone that was alive on the planet at that, at that time. Everyone, yeah. Yeah. no matter their age. This whole idea of um, marking generations in 20-year groupings is a 20th century invention. And prior to that, a generation was much more broad. It included everyone who was alive at the time, right? So, for example, if you talk about the Elizabethan era, it's roughly 50 years and included everyone who was alive in that 50 years. The Georgian era included, it was 140 years, included everyone alive in that era, right? Whereas well, now we've gone, no, 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 there's multiple generations all alive at the same time. And the problem with that is that it actually 
this term generations actually highlights the differences between the generations. So instead of saying, hey, everyone living at the same time, we are the one, we are one generation, we're together, it actually drives a wedge between the different age groups. And it creates a sense where you don't understand me, you don't know what I'm going through, that generation doesn't know anything, that generation never thinks, this generation's old, you know, it, it, can, it, it creates these barriers between all the different generations and it's very hard to cross that barrier. And it's not biblical and it's not what the church needs, all right? We've got to have the generations the generations together. In Jewish faith and in the early Christian faith, the older generation taught the younger generation. Every time they had a feast or a festival and they would sit down and eat, there was even little, um, almost like um, plans of who said what. So there's one particular Jewish feast where they would all sit down having a meal and then the youngest child there would say, why do we do this? And it was actually set. They, they, they knew their role. That was their role. They were the youngest. Why do we do this? And then the, the, the father or others in the family would then say, this is why we do it. And they would talk about the faithfulness of God. And they would talk about his, um, his faithfulness, what he'd done for them, what he was going to do in the future. And they would actually teach their kids around food this, and it was all the generations together. And I love that. And if you want some scriptures for proof, here we go. These are just a few. Again, you could do your own search and you will find dozens and dozens of these. Even through the Psalms, it's heaps. Daniel 4 verse 3. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Psalm 90 verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Malachi 4 6. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Deuteronomy 6 verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. That's how they taught their kids, right? Joshua 4, 6 and 7. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And I could give you hundreds more. Like there's so many. Scholars actually believe this is why the Jewish people actually exist, continued to exist as a nation. There's no other people group on the face of the planet in history that lost their homeland and was literally scattered throughout the world and still managed to maintain its national identity and its religion yeah. and its culture and its traditions, right? The Jews are the only ones, and they were literally scattered, and yet the Jews that were, you know, for hundreds of years in Russia and the Jews that for hundreds of years were in Europe or the Jews that for hundreds of years were in Palestine, all when they come together, same faith, same religion, same yeah. festivals, same traditions, because they passed it down through the generations for 2,000 years. Their nation and their faith survived uncorrupted because the generations taught each other. It really was the key to their faith, their faith survival and their strength. And so we need to be like that. We need to be the church where there's no generation gap, yeah. right? We need to have the older women teach the younger women, which is from Titus chapter 2. We need the parents teaching the children. It means that young people will make fewer mistakes because they're guided by the wisdom of the mature. And so in a world where there's little or no connection between the generations, we need to be the standout. We need to show another way. That's one of the ways we're going to respond to this because we have a world full of orphans, really, who do not have father figures, do not have the right parent, parental um, people in their lives. We can provide that family for them, right? But it's going to take all of us. Make sense? All right. Only got two more and then we're done. Number five way that we're going to respond to this is, I've called it a Samuel moment. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, um, 
the nation of Israel came to Samuel and they said, we want a king. And Samuel was like, no, this is not a good idea. God warned you about this in Deuteronomy. God actually outlaid, if you ask for a king, these are the things that are going to happen. This is what the king will do to you back in Deuteronomy. And Samuel was like, this is not a good idea, guys. And what's more, you know this is not a good idea because you know what the God said. And um, everyone knew this was not of God. It wasn't like Israel thought that this was a God thing, that everyone knew, but they didn't care they wanted a king. And I loved Samuel's responses. He actually has two responses to this request. Um, he goes to God and he, you know, follows God's direction. But the, this is, if you boil it down, these are the two things that he did. The first thing Samuel did is he had a prophetic word for the people. He said to the people, you've chosen and you're responsible for your choice. In other words, the choices, we, we're taught by this particular, by modernity, that you can choose and choose and choose and choose and there's no consequences. Samuel's going, no, no, there are consequences to choices. Mm-hmm. You actually have a responsibility for the choices you make. Mm-hmm. And it's not like he's speaking bad, mean judgment. He's just going, no, this is actually the outcome. This is the outcome of the choice. And so he says that to them. There were consequences to their choice and they needed to know that. And so he actually says that to them. He says, you know... You want a king, God doesn't want you to have a king. And let me tell you what the king's going to do. He talks about how the king's going to mistreat them. He talks about how the king will you know, get their sons and daughters to serve him, how the king will take a, um, tax their, their crops and tax their livestock and all that. kind. He actually tells them exactly that. So if you want this, guys, you understand this is what's going to happen. So that's his first thing, his prophetic word. You have chosen, therefore you're responsible for your choice. The second thing he does is a prophetic action. See, regardless of what the people chose to do, Samuel was still going to live in obedience to God. So he's basically saying, look, that is your choice, but I also have to make my choice. And I've already made my choice to follow God, and I'm going to live true to that. So regardless of the people's decision, even though Samuel, directed by God, selected Saul and anointed him king, he did it because God told him to, not because the people told him to. All right? The people who were asking for the king were not Samuel's masters. God was Samuel's master. And so he says to the people, you've chosen and you're responsible for your choice and I've chosen too. And so I've got to be responsible for my choice. I must live true to the call of God on my life. And I believe that as the West continues to walk away from God and as the church loses the influence that it once had in the West, I really pray that those statements ring true for our lives. Um, that we wouldn't shy away from speaking prophetically, not, not nasty, not judgment, not uh, but speaking prophetically and going, hey, this is, this is the danger of that action. This is the yep. danger. This is the consequence of those decisions, but not being swayed ourselves. I'm going to give you another quote from the book. It says, therefore, like Samuel, we must say the following with boldness and with sorrow to our generation. Leaders and peoples of the West, these are your choices and these will be your consequences. We plead with you for your own sake and for the sake of your... Sorry, that's supposed to be sake. For your own sake and for the sake of your children's children, do not go this way. But if you do go this way, we will not join you. We are called as followers of Jesus to be a distinctive people and we are committed to live differently. We will not worship your gods and we will not live according to your ways. We are citizens, citizens of the city of God and no more than resident aliens in the city of man. I think this is... We're in that time already. Um, the way that the world is going is not the way that we're called to live. Mm. And that's, that's why I said earlier it's going to be harder and harder to be a pew sitter in the church 
People are going to be forced to make a call. We're either going to have to pick up our cross and follow Christ or we're going to walk out the door. And, and it's heartbreaking that people will walk out the door, but people will walk out the door. Um, and, and for us to have the courage but also the love, um, you know, loving people does not mean letting them do whatever they want. That's not, if, if I love my ch- children that way, that would actually not be okay. Now, I can't control people like I control my kids. So, we, you know, at the end of the day, we do have to let them do what, what they want, but we, we don't do it, we don't give them our blessing in that way. You know what I mean? Mm. We've got to warn people. Say, so look, a particular friend of mine and, and, and the way that she lives, I've had to sit with her a few times and go, I love you, I will always love you, but I'm concerned about this. And just speak the truth in love. Mm. So that's number five is our, is our Mo, uh, Samuel moment. And the last one to finish this all off is a Moses moment. Um, can anyone think of the biggest leadership crisis that Moses had? Yeah? Um, burning bush. No, leadership crisis. That would have been a massive Receiving encounter, the but the crisis <laughs> when it was really bad. Receiving the uh, Ten Commandments. Yeah, no. When, when he was up that was good. When he was up in when the Jesus, mountain, When God did that. Did they deny his authority saying he's gone wandering off? That's where we're getting to, yes. Yeah, the golden calf. Yeah, the yes, golden that's calf. it. Yes. So he comes down, you're right. Comes down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments mm. and he discovers the people have gone, yeah, no, we're going to build ourselves a golden calf. <laughs> it's like the number one. You're like, don't, what don't the do heck? This. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like, and in some ways you go, okay, I can see it because they were, Moses is up on the mountain. He's been gone for like 40 days or something. Um, up on the mountain is like lightning and fire and clouds and terror. And they've been told if you get on the mountain, you'll die. So they're freaking out, right? There's this invisible, all-powerful God that they didn't really know, okay? And they decided that instead of the invisible, all-powerful God, they wanted a God that they could see, a God that they could understand in their own minds. They wanted to reduce their God to fit their comfort zone, mm. right? God doesn't fit our comfort zone. <laughs> but that's what the Israelites decided they wanted. And so Moses comes down the mountain and sees this. Mm. They're worshipping a golden calf. And he is just like, what? <laughs> what? Like, you can imagine, right? And so at his greatest leadership crisis, um, it's in, did I write it down? Oh, no, I didn't write it down. Sorry. Somewhere. I want to say Deuteronomy 5, but I could be wrong. It's in the Bible. Uh, it's in the Bible. <laughs> in that moment, God, Moses goes before God's face and he has this conversation and, and God's like, right, I'm, they're, they're wiped out. There's all this, this back and forth with God. But in that moment, the heart of Moses' the heart, the cry of Moses' heart was, God, show me your glory. It's in that moment that, God, that Moses says to God, show me your glory. Moses, in that moment of his deepest crisis, needed the presence of God. He was like, all this stuff has gone down. I need your presence. I need to be in your presence. I need to be like, just show me your glory. Show me your glory. And we're in the same thing. We need the presence of God. And I, I started number one out of these six points was, a relationship with God, but this is an, this is another level. This is the presence of God, where we we so need His supernatural power empowerment. We so need His supernatural presence. The Holy Spirit has actually been given to us. So Moses had to ask God, "Show me Your glory," right? And God actually says to him, "Well, I'll I'll, I'll pass by 
my back, but you know, I'll give you as much of my glory as you can without dying. It's pretty much what God said to him. Whereas to us, God goes, hey, I'm going to pour out my spirit on you. So we have the presence of God. We have the Holy Spirit and we experience that. And in the process of receiving the presence of God, we become holy. We become a holy people. The Bible's called us a royal priesthood, a holy people. And that's not because of us. It's because of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, right? Holiness, which is what it's going to take in this world, is not birthed out of a list of rules. It's not us looking at the world and going, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. We're, we're running by the list. Holiness comes out of the presence of God. Holiness comes out of being in his presence and not wanting to ever disappoint him. <laughs> Holiness comes out of being in his presence and wanting to become more like him, becoming more Christ-like, not out of a list of rules. And that's how we're changed. When we're in the presence of God, we are changed. We're transformed from the inside out. One of the most powerful things that happened, you know, last weekend we had the Young Adults Conference and there were moments where people were just lost in the presence of God. And God was doing a deep work that no preaching can ever do. Okay? That's what we're talking about. The presence of God in our lives. And we need to be able to carry that presence of God into a dark world. That's our role. That's our job. That's how God wants us to respond. Is to not avoid it, not shy away from it, not run away from the world, but walk into it, carrying the presence of God, shining that kind of light. We're to remain faithful. We're to carry the presence of God in a dark world. And we're to live the way of Jesus no matter the cost. So I just want to finish by one last quote because it's been the night for quotes. I'm sorry there's no videos tonight, unlike last week. Our faith in God must always be our defining trust and the compass for our way of life. Living before the absolute presence of God, we are called to be faithful and therefore unmanipulable. I think that's a made-up word, but unable to be manipulated is what he's trying to say. Unmanipulable, unbribable, undeterrable, and unclubbable. We we serve an impossible God, and we are to be God's impossible people. Let us then determine and resolve to be so faithful in all the challenges and ordeals the onrushing future brings that it may be said of us that we, in our turn, have served God's purpose in our generation. So help us, God. I think of people like Daniel, who was a teenager taken as, in, as into slavery in Babylon and shone the light of Jesus in a... Foreign, not just a foreign land, but an anti-God land. And yet he transfer, transformed that place and he transformed the heart of the king. And I think um, that's what we're talking about. If we can serve God's purpose in our generation, we could be Daniels to this generation. I think that would be awesome. And that's a great place to stop. And so we're done. Thanks, guys. Thanks. I hope you-